Good morning. Um, yeah, John chapter 8, from verse 2. At dawn, he, that's Jesus, went to the temple again, and all the people were coming to him. He sat down and began to teach them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. Teacher, they said to him, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They asked this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. When they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and said to them, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again and continued writing on the ground. When they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Only he was left with the woman in the center. When Jesus stood up, he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. Thank you, Mel. Even more of a thank you, because 20 minutes ago, she didn't know she was reading this morning. So well done. Good morning, everyone. My name is Dan. This morning, we continue our This Is Why series, looking at the way Jesus interacts with people, the way Jesus loves people, the way he restores them, the way he treats them with dignity, and the way he transforms lives when we encounter him, and the way when we know Jesus, we move from death to life. I think it's a tragedy that Christians are sometimes associated with being judgmental. And yet Jesus, who was God, the judge of all the earth, treats people with compassion. The word translated compassion in Greek comes from com, meaning with, and passio, meaning passion, literally, an intensity of feeling. As Christians, we're supposed to be like Jesus. And when people feel things, we're supposed to literally embody that. We're supposed to feel things with people. We're supposed to be co-sufferers with them, sharing in their suffering, understanding where people are coming from. We're supposed to be able to say, there but for the grace of God go I. This morning, we will see the grace of God in action, a grace that rescues. We'll see how the story we're looking at, um, that we've just heard, John chapter 8, the woman caught in adultery, is actually a picture of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and what that means for us today in this room. I've only got 10 minutes, maybe a one minute more, otherwise Matt will tell me off. Um, so I'm going to go quickly. So first we're going to set the scene, then we're going to look at the trap, and then we're going to talk about the twist. Like all good stories, this one this morning has a twist. So John 8 begins with Jesus entering into the temple courts in Jerusalem. This was a place of teaching, a place where scribes would expound the law, people would gather around them and listen to them and how clever they are. 
And I love how as Jesus enters the temple courts, it says that everyone gathered around him. Imagine what it was like being one of the scribes sat there teaching and suddenly everyone flocks to the other side of the court where Jesus is. That does not go down well. John tells us religious leaders were furious with Jesus. They were furious that people were following him and not them. It's like the earliest form of uh, social media follower envy. (laughs) So the scene begins with Jesus sat there teaching. And as he often is, Jesus is interrupted. It's worth highlighting how infinitely interruptible Jesus was. He was the most, uh, on the most important mission the world has ever known, and yet whenever people interrupt him, he gives them his time. This time, he is interrupted by a group of scribes who are intent on evil, and they, a bunch of blokes drag a woman against her will into the crowd, through the crowd, and up to his feet. A woman who has been caught in adultery. They could have left her in custody. They chose to publicly humiliate this woman, but as we'll see, it doesn't go well for them. It's interesting, there's no man caught in adultery with them. Often people don't realize, but in Jewish law, the man and the woman were guilty. Both of them should be punished, but there is no mention of the man in this story. Was he a fast runner? I don't think so. I think it's more sinister than that. I think to this group of men, the woman is not important. She's just a tool. She's just a human-shaped lump of meat in this trap. So let's look at the trap. I can imagine on the way to the temple, this group of men would have been giggling with glee, cackling at the perfection of their trap. They barge through the crowds and they say to Jesus, We've caught this woman in the act of adultery, and the law says she should be stoned. What do you say? So the trap is set with a question and a pointed finger. It's an impossible trap to get out of. The problem is, Jerusalem is under the control of Rome, and the Roman law dictates that only Roman authorities are allowed to execute. Only they have the power of life and death. So if Jesus agrees the woman should be stoned, he will be in direct conflict with the governing powers. But if he disagrees, if he says the woman should be let go, then in this place of teaching, he will be undermining the law of Moses, which would be unthinkable to the Jewish people. So they have Jesus between a rock and a hard place. Unfortunately for them, they hadn't realized that Jesus is the rock the rock of the ages, God himself. When you try and put God in an impossible situation, it doesn't go well. Because with God, all things are possible. They hadn't realized who Jesus was. They'd intended for this woman to meet her maker, to die. Unfortunately for them, she did meet her maker, just not in the way they intended. So in the courts, the hustle and bustle would have died down. Silence descended. With a question and a pointed finger, they had trapped Jesus. And what happens next? Jesus descended. He gets down into the dirt. This is what God does. This is who God is. 
Look at the title slide for the series, this moment, showing who God is. The grace of God, a God of infinite holiness, who meets us in our mess, who gets down into the dirt with us, who rescues us. So let's look at the twist. The finger was pointed at Jesus, and now the finger of God writes in the dirt. As he begins to write, these men begin to throw accusations against her again. You can feel the panic brewing. We don't know what Jesus wrote. I'm just going to come out and say that. I wish I did. But we love a mystery, don't we? This is like the Mona Lisa of the Gospels. And I think we can guess what Jesus wrote. It's, in, it's interesting that in Jewish law, it says that there must be multiple eyewitnesses to a crime for a stoning to occur. But it says the eyewitnesses cannot be involved in the same sin. That is so important. They cannot be guilty of the same crime. So I think Jesus wrote down the names of people the eyewitnesses had been involved in the same sin with. He began to expose their hypocrisy. Throughout scripture, the religious leaders at the time are described as whitewashed tombs. They look great on the outside, on, side, on the inside they're places of decay. They are hypocrites. And these people had chosen to publicly humiliate this woman and instead they are publicly humiliated. Jesus says the famous words, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. There is no sound of accusation anymore. There is no look of glee upon a single face. The silence would have been deafening. The only sound now the dropping of stones. The text tells us that from the oldest to the youngest, the accusers, in silence, leave. I believe this morning, and I believe all through our lives, God is calling us to drop our stones. Some of us carry different kinds of stones. Some of us carry stones of unforgiveness. Some of us have been harmed by people, sometimes terribly, emotionally, physically. Forgiving people is not putting yourself back in harm's way, emotionally or physically. Forgiving people really is about giving them up to God, saying, God, you are the judge, and I trust that you are good enough to judge them. I will not hold on to anger. I will not hold on to thoughts of vengeance any longer. In a sense, forgiving people releases them, but it releases you. Jesus described in the previous chapter of John how when you believe in him, streams of living water flow through you, the Holy Spirit. Every time we don't forgive someone, it's like we're placing a rock in the stream and rocks form dams. Some of us need to drop our stones of unforgiveness. When we don't let go of things, it leads to bitterness. The Old Testament says that the human heart is, um, 
knows its own bitterness in Proverbs 14. There's something deeply internal about bitterness. It's deep-rooted within us, but it affects everything that we do. The Apostle Paul does not mince his words when he talks about bitterness. In Ephesians 4, he says, get rid of all bitterness. Get rid of it. Literally, let it go. The human heart is a bit like an orchard. If we allow bitter fruit to seed, before we know it, we're reaping a harvest of bitter fruit. But God is like a patient gardener who knows us, who loves us. And he is able to weed out the deepest of roots if we allow him to do that by his spirit. This morning, I think God is calling some of us to let go of stones of bitterness. Other times, we simply judge other people. Internally, externally, we accuse. We think we're always right. We think our way is always better. We think we're better. This morning, God is calling some of us to drop our stones of judgment. It's not easy reaching out to people if your hands are holding stones. So let's go back to our story. I don't want any heaviness because this is the most beautiful climax to a story I've ever seen. This is more beautiful than the Mona Lisa. This is a life transformed by an encounter with Jesus. And the gospel, it's like a microcosm of the gospel of why Jesus came. Earlier on in the story, it feels like a storm. A storm, a maelstrom of accusation and threat, pointed fingers swirling around this woman. But sometimes, in a storm, the safest place you can be is in the center. And this woman is described as being in the middle with Jesus, her maker. It's the safest place you could possibly be. The accusers disappear. The storm subsides. Calm resumes. And now Jesus speaks to this woman directly for the first time. And, she sa and he says, woman. The English translation of this word cannot do it justice. It sounds too harsh, it sounds almost condescending, woman, but it's not like that at all. English doesn't have a good alternative. Perhaps the Americans do better than us in this and many things, but uh, perhaps think of uh, a New York taxi driver, Philippe, sh Philippe shaking his head, um, a New York taxi driver calling a woman lady, or someone from the deep south saying ma'am. The, wor the word Jesus uses is full of respect. Jesus looks at her and with a word begins to restore her dignity. He says to her, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? In Jewish law, multiple eyewitnesses need to be present for a case to stand. So what Jesus is saying is, case dismissed. The woman can't believe it, you can tell, because she says, there is no one here, Lord. And Jesus' reply is the most important thing you could ever hear on this earth. God himself says to her, I don't condemn you either. Now go and sin no more. When Jesus said, let he who is without sin cast the first stone, there is actually only one person in human history 
who would be qualified to throw that stone? Jesus himself. Only Jesus has lived a life without sin. The Bible is clear that all of us fall short of the glory of God. All of us sin. We are all, in a way, like the woman in the story. We all need forgiveness. We all need a saviour. And that is why Jesus came. That is who Jesus is. A God of infinite holiness, grace and mercy who reaches down and meets us in our mess and rescues us. In the temple courts that morning, a woman's death sentence was defeated. But just a few days after this, Jesus went to the cross and there he defeated death for eternity for all who believe in his name. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. When you believe in Jesus, your guilty sentence is overturned. Case dismissed. And as the Apostle Paul says, there is no and there never can be condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for who you are and I thank you for your son, that he came, he died to take away our sins so that we may be forgiven if we believe in him. I pray, Holy Spirit, that by your power you enable us to drop our stones, that we may treat people with the dignity they deserve, that we may see people through the eyes of Jesus, that we may be a people of compassion. And God, I pray for anyone here who doesn't yet know you, that this would be their temple court day, that they would have an encounter with you, Jesus, and be set free and have their life transformed, rescued from death to life this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we move from one true story, and now we're going to have another true story. Becky's going to come and share a testimony with us. <laughs> um, normally I share um, sort of off the cuff but I've had to write it down so you'll forgive me if I sound a bit like I'm reading um, because I am um, but I wanted to kind of be um, a bit more accurate with my words this morning um, so just to address the elephant that will soon enter the room uh, I'm talking about my husband of 10 years we have two children together Matt uh, and I'm sure it's slightly weird for him to hear his testimony being shared by someone else um, but here we are um, have you ever heard someone tell you a story about how Jesus worked in their life and something so amazing happened that you still remember it? Perhaps Angela's testimony a couple of weeks ago about the woman and the necklace has stuck in your mind recently. Maybe uh, Dan's story that he's told in the past about his jail cell uh, encounter. Um, maybe you can think about an amazing healing or um, piece of knowledge that someone got or um, how God provided in a certain way that resulted in you or someone else ultimately accepting Jesus. As I share briefly, um, my heart um, as I share this is for those of you who feel like your own testimonies are boring or insignificant or you feel that maybe you don't even have one and um, that you'd be encouraged of God's good purpose and plan in your life. Nothing happens by accident. 
perhaps this morning will be a puzzle piece for you. Let me tell you mine and Matt's testimonies of salvation. When I became a Christian, it was a children's holiday camp in the mid-90s. If you've ever been to a Christian holiday camp or a weekend away or something similar, um, I think you'll probably agree they're quite formative, aren't they? There's normally something you can remember about them. Um, my parents were Christians. I grew up knowing God was there. Um, and although I understood plenty in my head, I hadn't had, in quotes, a moment of my own. Uh, and there was a leader at the children's camp called Sim. And I thought, I was about nine, that he was really unattainable cool. He wore a white t-shirt with a black leather jacket. Remember, this was 1994. Uh, and he talked about being forgiven from sin. I was in awe and I wanted to be like him. Uh, and one summer's evening, I responded to a call from the speaker at the front and gave my life over to Jesus. I received a little gospel booklet. I was prayed for by an enthusiastic Danish leader who prayed for me in Danish. Uh, and I can recall clearly that that was the moment I received Jesus into my heart. I recommitted to him multiple times over my teens, but that's the first moment that I remember. Matt's family aren't Christians. He never went to a Christian camp with a cool guy like Sim. Uh, and by the time he'd reached university, he was actively anti-God even being the guy who goes out of his way to research the Bible and the problems with the Christ Christianity to then publicly and confidently shoot down people's arguments. If you've ever had someone come along to an event like this, you'll know what I mean. Skip forward to Matt's mid-twenties. Matt was in a dark place in his life. He'd come out of a hurtful breakup with a long-term girlfriend. He was making some reactive choices in life and found himself, after several years away, back in the student graduate scene in Cambridge, in an evening temp job with someone, as it turns out, a Christian, in a similar position where her relationship had painfully broken up, and they found themselves both hurting and questioning together. They talked a lot, including issues of faith. Everything Matt had believed so far about the world, so confidently, with such arrogant certainty, hadn't worked out, and he found himself seeking better answers, exploring Christianity in a more personal way. These two people, Matt and the friend, uh, are quite literally a godsend for each other. So Matt comes along to a leaving dinner of one of my good friends as the plus one from this girl from his work. We meet for the first time, and I see a dashing young man with stylish hair, yes, hair, <laughs> and a compelling <laughs> face, uh, and a compelling smile. And over the next couple of months, Matt and I get to know each other, mostly in group contexts. And one evening in 2007, I invite Matt along to church here. Uh, having asked many friends uh, in the past to, uh, to come along to church with me, with almost zero success, I was probably a bit surprised when he agreed, and even more so when he actually turned up. Uh, Matt was probably surprised too. He tells me the reason he said yes to coming wasn't for me. It remains a mystery to him, so it must have been a God moment. After that, Matt and I had many com uh, conversations about faith until one day, sometime uh, the following year, I realized, and it was really anticlimactic, uh, that he'd become a Christian. He said he'd become convinced by the evidence and loved the family community that had welcomed him at church. It made sense now. 
I quizzed him about it, eager to hear his moment of revelation from God, the testimony of his moment, like I'd had a moment. He said something somewhat disappointing, like, there wasn't one moment I can put my finger on. I suppose when I was in the shower, I realized I believe it all, but I wouldn't say that there was a special moment. It's just been a gradual thing. My pride was crushed. My starring role in Matt's conversion story was barely even a side note. I was just a tiny piece in a long game that came second mention even to the shower. <laughs> a lifetime of little puzzle piece moments conspiring to see Matt come to Jesus had finished with another little puzzle piece moment. But it was beautifully orchestrated by the God who, as Matt puts it, was on his case. When Matt fell, asked me to share my role in Matt's testimony to show how Jesus is still at work today, using ordinary people in our very own church to share Jesus with others. It seemed a strange testimony for me to bring. Hello church, my role was basically non-existent. Matt probably would have become a Christian without me. Uh, I felt like I didn't have a part in it worth bringing. Not my testimony really, and not my role in Matt's. It would make more sense for Matt to share his own testimony, surely. My part in it wasn't, wouldn't raise faith in anyone listening. However, Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal, to kill and to destroy. But I have come that you may have life and have it in all its fullness. Jesus wants and wanted to bring life in all its fullness to me and to Matt. That is a glorious testimony to have the privilege to share. Jesus was on Matt's case from the beginning of time, the most epic of long games, a rescue that started from before time, to manger, to cross and resurrection and beyond. Jesus is the only one who could satisfy him and shine his light into the dark places, the only one who gives life in all its fullness and saw the perfect plan to bring it about in Matt's life. Matt's testimony and my tiny role in one puzzle piece is not insignificant. It is powerful and important because of him and his grace in drawing Matt to himself. It was never about anything I did. In his grace, something wonderful and yet totally undeserved, Jesus had a puzzle piece for me to be part of. A couple of weeks ago, Angela was telling her part in this uh, lady's story uh, with the necklace, uh, and she used the phrase, isn't God clever? And I want to claim this phrase for today. Matt's story, which probably historically included the unseen and uncredited prayers of a youth club leader or an outreach event volunteer or a Christian teacher that we just don't know about. It's a wonderful example of how a stubborn and self-assured man who was certain he didn't need God is loved and called precious. And in God's beautiful mercy, he reached into Matt's life again and again, patiently waiting for that final puzzle piece to be put into place. Isn't God clever?